traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. What happens when economists think like engineers? This year's Nobel Prize rewards two economists who developed cutting-edge theory and put it into practice by transforming the humble auction. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, finance editor at The Economist. And coming up, the $100 billion bet that didn't pay off. Why SoftBank's Vision Fund has failed to deliver. There have been some pretty big, chunky losses on some of the investments, and WeWork is the obvious example. And Brace for Impact. How investors are hedging against the risk of post-election chaos in America. Usually there's additional uncertainty pricing around events, but the level that is priced in around this election seems inordinately high. But first... As the Secretary of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences announced this year's winners of the Nobel Prize for Economics, he did something unusual. He pulled out a small wooden gavel and wrapped it smartly on the table. Because this year's prize is all about auctions. It goes to Robert Wilson and Paul Milgram, both of Stanford University. Together, they've expanded the understanding of how auctions work and use that knowledge to design new kinds of auctions for things that would otherwise be difficult to sell, such as radio frequencies. I spoke to Paul Milgram just a few hours after he found out about the prize, alongside his former student, Silvia Console Batilana. Together, they run a company, Auctionomics, which puts auction theory into practice. Hi, Paul. Um, I'm Rachna from The Economist. Many congratulations. Hello. Hi. Thank you. Tell us how you found out about the award. Um, you picked up the phone in the, in the middle of the night, presumably? <laughs> I was asleep and I have my phone turned off and said, do not disturb. The Swedes couldn't reach me. But the, uh, the other winner is uh, Bob Wilson, my dissertation advisor, who also lives across the street from me. At 2.15 in the morning, I hear this banging on my door and my video doorbell goes off. And I can see uh, Bob there banging on the door and he's telling me, I can send you the video of it because it was recorded on the the best video doorbell. Paul? It's it's Bob Wilson. You've won the Nobel Nobel Prize. And so they're trying to reach you, but they cannot. They don't seem to have a number for you. We gave them your cell phone number. Yeah, I have. Wow. Well, he told me, you know, and um, and uh, they gave me a number to call, and I called and talked to uh, this guy, um, Adam Smith, believe it or not. You know, the guy's name is Adam Smith, who's in charge of the, the Nobel.org website. So, <laughs> And so you've had, you've had a few hours to digest it now, and what, yeah. what does it feel like to win the award with Bob Wilson? That's the only way to win it. You know, the, to me, you know, the, it, it doesn't change the way I live my life, right? I mean, I, I, I'm still teaching and doing research and all of that and doing consulting with my company, Auctionomics. 
the biggest thing really is the, is the opportunity to celebrate and having Sylvia here and winning with my dissertation advisor. Robert Wilson and Paul Milgram won this year's Nobel Prize for Economics for the work that they did developing auction theory. Ryan Avent writes The Economist's free exchange column on economics. And for the way that they built on that work to create practical auction designs to help solve real-world problems, much in the way that an engineer might. Now, to most people, an auction is when an item's put up for sale, it goes to the bidder who offers the highest price. All of that sounds really simple. But why isn't it? Well, the use of auctions to sell things certainly seems like a simple practice. It's something that humans have engaged in for thousands of years. But in the middle of the 20th century, economists started digging into precisely how these things function and and analyzing the ways in which they actually end up being quite complicated. The way an auction works depends in large part on the information that various participants have. You, know, you can imagine a work of art that was for sale. The only thing that mattered in the in the cases uh, that had been studied in the 1960s was how each bidder particularly felt about that piece of art and what the value was to them. But to make auctions more useful, what you want to do is be able to analyze a broader set of cases. And so if an oil field is being sold, there's some value to the oil in the ground there, but Different bidders may know different things or have different beliefs about how much that oil is worth. And so that changes the strategies involved. And so Wilson initially began sort of uh, assessing these cases and developing the theory to understand them. Milgram built on that to include cases in which the specific private valuations that bidders had mattered as well as the common value associated with the item being auctioned. And so they really developed these far more complex ways of understanding auctions. So unusually for an economics uh, Nobel Prize winner, Professors Milgram and Wilson's work actually has real world applications. So tell us how ordinary people might have encountered what they do. A key example of that would be in the early 1990s, demand among telecommunications companies for slices of radio spectrum was increasing because you had this enormous expansion in the use of mobile telephones, uh, the internet and things like that. It became important to governments to find ways to allocate the spectrum uh, more effectively to the companies that would make best use of it. Uh, and then also governments, of course, were keen to, to realize more value from the sales for taxpayers. And so Wilson and Milgram, along with a few other economists, designed essentially an entirely new format of auction, which has become known as the simultaneous multiple round auction. And this innovation that they came up with is one that's now been used across countries. It's been used to not just sell spectrum, but also things like natural resource rights and electricity has raised hundreds of billions of dollars for treasuries. And so whenever you make a telephone call on your mobile phone, you are directly experiencing something that's influenced by the work that won this Nobel Prize. That's really interesting what you said, Ryan, because these prizes are meant to reward not just innovation, but work that actively benefits society at large. So tell us a little bit more about the social value of Milgram's and Wilson's work. I think it's telling that this is the the third time in the last 20 years that the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has awarded work of this sort, practical engineering-like developments from theory. I think it's a signal to the profession that this is something that they'd like to see more of, that the profession ought to think of themselves not simply as ivory tower scholars, but as engineers looking to specific needs that society has and thinking about the ways that their theoretical insights can be used to address those needs. After our brief chat, Paul Milgram was stolen away to prepare for another press conference. So I asked Silvia Console Batilana about the real-world problems they've been able to solve using Wilson and Milgram's auction theory. 
Uh, well, I think a very fascinating one was the incentive auction, which is an auction where uh, the U.S. government raised $19 billion with our design. And so there the, the problem was to how to figure out. So there was a radio spectrum that was owned by the television stations, and we needed to incentivize them to sell it in order to be able to sell it to the AT&T and Verizon of the world. But the government didn't have authorization to just buy the spectrum back from them and then flip it. And so we had to design a mechanism in which we didn't know how much we were going to buy because we didn't know how much they were going to sell. So it was like, what's the sell side and the buy side interlocked together to solve the problem that computer scientists didn't think could be solved. This idea of incentivizing current owner to free up the resources that they needed has now caught foot since then. And so now actually the C-band auction where the 5G will be, is a similar flip where there's a satellite companies like SES and Intelsat who own the spectrum and are now freeing it up so that the consumers can use it for 5G. On the spectrum auctions, that's definitely the best known application, I think, yeah. of auction theory in solving this, this problem. The auctions raise a lot of money by design and the telecoms firms often complain that in subsequent years they don't have enough money to invest because they've spent it on their bandwidth. What would you say to those complaints? So actually, not all governments have that goal. So for example, in the UK, Ofcom, who is the UK regulator, specifically by mandate, cannot have a revenue maximizing as their scope. The goal is to get a spectrum to as many segments of the population as possible. So yes, it is, it is a problem. So it depends when you design an auction, each government gives a set of goals. Revenue maximization might or might not be one of them. I wanted to ask you about future potential applications that are really exciting in the area of auctions. You mentioned 5G. Tell us, tell us a few more. Actually, everything. I mean, we presented in Chile for like fishing rights auctions. In Colombia, our company Auctionomics redesigned uh, the whole gas market. So standardized the contract and then used the auction to like make it a single market. It was all like one-on-one. Rough diamonds are now sold with the design that Paul invented years ago. So it's actually every market that is complex can be with an auction. So it's really a fascinating field. Professor Milgram won the award with his dissertation advisor and you were Professor Milgram's PhD student. Do you have any advice for people starting out in the field of economics? Well, I think like the way I see it is like nothing is impossible. And I think economics can really help to solve real world problems and just go out there and think how you would apply what you've learned to solve actual problems. It's exciting. And you might know that Wilson had four students that won the Nobel. Wow. Okay. So clearly the advice should be to study with Professor Wilson. Yes, exactly. (laughs) He might be retiring soon, but they can still study with Professor Milgram. (laughs) Sylvia, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye. And our thanks to Paul Milgram and to Ryan Avent. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Next, in 2018, The Economist devoted a cover to a once-obscure Japanese businessman, Masayoshi Son, the founder and chief executive of SoftBank, a telecoms and internet conglomerate. 
Back then, the billionaire entrepreneur had put together an enormous $100 billion investment fund, which was gobbling up stakes in the world's most exciting young companies, like Uber, WeWork and ByteDance. The Vision Fund promised to transform the world of investing in technology. But two years on, that vision has faded. The hype isn't hard to justify. It was four times the size of the biggest private equity fund that had ever been raised. Tamsin Booth is our technology and business editor, and she's been following the Vision Fund's performance. Certainly private equity funds and also Silicon Valley venture capital investors just looked at it in awe and with a certain amount of jealousy, really. They were very worried that a fund of that size would simply be able to chase them out of a lot of the best deals investing in in young, promising, fast growth startups. The idea was that instead of giving an entrepreneur just the amount of money that he or she needed to grow the company, he would give them a multiple of that sum. And that would mean that they wouldn't have to bother spending time on capital raising. They could fully devote themselves to their business. It also meant that they could kind of go in and really invest for growth. And the second claim was just that because there would be such a lot of companies that the fund had invested in, so at the moment there are 86 companies in the first vision fund, there would be all kinds of synergy and learning opportunities between them and kind of global ecosystem. So that was then. How has it since done in practice? Well, the fund runs for 12 years and we're three years in. And the fact is that it hasn't measured up to anything like Son Masayoshi's expectations or indeed the expectations of its biggest single investor, the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, which pledged 45 billion of the 100 or so billion. So if you look at the hard numbers, they've invested 84 billion and it's up at this point by 3.5 billion. And I think that since June, it's probably up another few billion as well. So it's not a terrifically great return. I mean, it's basically nothing to write home about. But it's not a financial disaster. You've got to remember that it has been paying out semi-annual coupons on the money that some investors have put in, notably the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which is Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund. It has also distributed about 11 billion back to its limited partners. So it's more of a mediocrity, I would say, so far, three years into the 12 years. The main reason for that are there have been some pretty big, chunky losses on some of the investments, and WeWork is the obvious example. But the other big reason is that COVID-19 and lockdowns has had a massive downward effect on the valuations of a lot of the firms that has invested in, in hospitality, entertainment, hotels, and so on. Okay, so Tamsin, apart from a healthy dose of disillusionment, what lessons can we learn from this? Well, the first and most obvious lesson is just that the 100 billion fund was too big and it was invested too quickly. And there's an old Silicon Valley saying, which is that startups die not of starvation, but of surfeit, i.e. you just can't stuff them full of too much money. They waste the money, they sort of expand too quickly. And so that's what you've really seen here. The second thing is that this sort of notion of an ecosystem is somewhat flawed. I'm sure that the Vision Fund companies have learned plenty from each other. But in the case of ride hailing, I think it's been quite a struggle for the Vision Fund to try and get consolidation among their firms. Uber Eats enjoys fighting DoorDash and vice versa. And then I guess the third very strong lesson is around 
governance at the Vision Fund. The reality is that for a fund that size, people really started to want more transparency and more information into what they were up to, how they were marking up their valuations. Governance really matters in terms of getting good results and making money. That's really interesting, Tamsin. And do you feel that Massa and SoftBank have learned those lessons? It's a really interesting question. So Massa is notorious for being able to bounce back from any sort of setback or failure. And, you know, the people who run the Vision Fund are great risk takers and they know full well that investments go down as well as up. There's lots of reason why actually they might come back quite strongly and just say, well, we're only three years into the fund There's still lots of opportunities. You can see that the IPO market is on fire at the moment. We're going to get lots of amazing exits for some of our companies like DD or ByteDance, which is the owner of TikTok. Uber is going to be incredibly successful in many years post-pandemic. So you could almost expect them to be pretty uncowed by the results so far. In fact, having spoken to the management team, I'm quite taken aback by how much they have absorbed the lessons of what's gone on. The other reason is that they attracted the attention of Elliot, the world's scariest activist hedge fund, which came in and got them to upgrade their governance. So bringing in independent directors, bringing more transparency to what was going on at the SoftBank group level as well. They definitely have learned lessons. And the ultimate evidence of that is if you look at Vision Fund 2, which was supposed to be a fund worth 108 billion. That was sort of at the period where Massa and his lieutenants still had these gargantuan visions. Its actual size is 2.7 billion. It's just a radically different kind of fund. It's also taking much smaller stakes in companies. It's taking longer to invest. Part of that is simply a function, ironically enough, that the Vision Fund 1 has invested in everything that there's out there to invest in. So in a way, it's making a virtue out of necessity. But there's no doubt that the lessons have been learned. So Tamsin, you've told us about Vision Fund 2 being much smaller than Vision Fund 1. What next for Massa and SoftBank? Well, that is the question that everyone is asking right now, because in March this year, Massa embarked on a massive kind of $41 billion programme of asset sales. One reason was to reduce debt. The other was to do a lot of share buybacks. Because basically in March, as the lockdowns really hit markets, his whole empire of soft bank groups sort of went through quite a wobbly phase. He's also negotiated the sale of ARM, a British chip blueprint company and other assets. So essentially Massa is sitting on a vast pile of cash right now between about 50 and $60 billion. And everyone is wondering what he's going to do with all the money. So part of it, I think, will go into probably a series of vision funds. You, know, you have this first one at 100 billion. Second one should have been 108 billion is about 3 billion. And then you'll have a sort of series of these small ones is the plan. Then there are a couple of other options. I think what's really interesting is that Massa's overall vision of the spread of artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things has been absolutely bang on. But I think it's possible that the way he wants to take advantage of that isn't necessarily only through private technology unicorns. It's also through the publicly listed tech giants, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Netflix, and so on. The reason for that is just because the tech giants are positioned right now to take advantage from the massive shifts and sort of digital surge that we're seeing. And then the other wild card is whether he would like to take SoftBank Group private. 
This has been on the cards for a long time, but the sums involved would be absolutely enormous. He'd have to raise around 80, 90 billion or something in, in that realm. Don't hold me to the exact number. So that could be one option for the future that people are very much wondering about. Tamsin Booth, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. To read more about Massa's faded vision, go to economist.com. You can also read the latest about the big bank's earnings season and our Bartleby columnist on what happens when companies give power to the workers. If you're not yet a subscriber, there's a special offer for Economist radio listeners. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the episode notes on your podcast app. Finally, if there's one thing that makes financiers nervous, it's uncertainty. And in the run-up to America's presidential election, during a global pandemic, uncertainty is rife. More Americans are voting by mail, and postal ballots take longer to count. That raises the prospect of a protracted period without a clear winner. Added to this, President Donald Trump has threatened to contest the results. For a sense of the destabilising impact this could have on stock markets, look back to the year 2000 and the contest between Al Gore and George W. Bush. The votes of Florida have been counted. They have been recounted. And tonight they have been certified. And we do not know yet who has won. So the Democrats, as they keep touching the ballots, maybe like when Jesus broke the bread and fed 5,000, they'll touch the ballots and make more? Never before has the U.S. Supreme Court involved itself in the election of a president. Could the chaos of two decades ago provide lessons for 2020? The election in 2000 is the most recent example we have of an election that was extremely contentious even after election day. Alice Fullwood is our Wall Street correspondent. It became clear that there was no clear winner on November 7th and on November 8th, the stock market fell by 1.6%. And downward pressure on stocks continued through the end of the year. So by the end of the year, the S&P 500, which is an index of America's largest companies, was down by 8%. Now, some of that was likely due to the fact that the dot-com bust had just begun. But at least in part, some of that move was due to electoral uncertainty. So Alice, that was 2000. What about election years generally? Do they tend to be good ones or bad ones for investors? Overall, years that have uncertainty tend to be leaner years for investors. So over the past 90 years, the S&P 500 returned an average of 8.5% per year. But in the 12 months that precede each presidential election, returns have been lower, just around 6% on average. So a leaner year in general. Interestingly, investors don't really seem to care about the politics of the eventual victor. So Democratic and Republican candidates see similar returns. But they do like familiarity, the return in a year where an incumbent is returned to the White House are slightly higher than in years where a newcomer gets to move in. So it seems, again, that it's the uncertainty that investors really don't like. What would we need to look at in the markets to see how jittery investors are feeling about elections? One of the ways you can observe election anxiety or anxiety in general in modern markets is to look at the VIX futures. The VIX is an index that measures volatility in stocks and futures are specific contracts for that index and they expire on certain days and that means that you can place in time when investors are particularly anxious about uncertainty and when they seem calmer. What usually happens is because there's more uncertainty 
further out into the future, the VIX futures curve is sort of gently upward sloping when you graph it. So the sort of short term VIX futures are lower and the long term ones are higher. But VIX futures also tend to be more expensive around high uncertainty events like elections or even, you know, particularly contentious central bank meetings and things. What are VIX futures telling us about how investors are reading this election season? There are a couple of things that are unusual about the level and state of the VIX futures curve at present. The first is just how extraordinarily high it is at the moment. You know, usually there's additional uncertainty priced in around events, but the level that is priced in around this election seems inordinately high. The second thing is that the price of VIX futures remains elevated, not just in October and November, which is the pre-election and election day period, but also in December and January futures as well, all the way through to the inauguration day. And that suggests that investors continue to be anxious about volatility, even after the election day is over. And now the last few weeks have seen so much happen. President Donald Trump was hospitalised with COVID-19 and then discharged. There were presidential and vice presidential debates, various stops and restarts in negotiations over federal stimulus. As the campaign enters the home straight, how much of these fast moving events are affecting how investors are thinking about risk? The way that VIX futures have moved over the past few weeks has been very interesting. So as you might expect, things like the president getting diagnosed with COVID-19 did initially drive these VIX futures higher. So it looked as though there was more uncertainty and investors were responding to that. One of the things that's been interesting, though, is that in the weeks since, that curve has dropped sort of reasonably significantly from the peaks that it reached on the Friday after Donald Trump announced his diagnosis and fallen back down to the levels they were even before the first presidential debate, which is when President Trump really played up that idea that he wouldn't accept the results of an election and this could be very contentious. That could be because there have been a slew of polls that look to have been very good for President Donald Trump's uh, rival, Joe Biden, and that perhaps suggests that investors see him sweeping states cleanly on November 3rd and therefore that there won't be this period of uncertainty after the election. It could also be that Donald Trump's recovery from COVID-19 has helped calm things down again. But whatever the reason, it seems as though investors have started to price in a little more calm rather than a little more chaos for the post-election period. Alice Forward, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachna. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Please take a moment to rate us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Sharnbog. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.